I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the history and evolution of music. From our earliest ancestors to Mozart, jazz, and hip-hop, technology has always had an impact on the art. The first bone flutes 40,000 years ago were so revolutionary because with a, with a tool, you abstract notes from the voice. The voice is the most natural organ to produce sound. A flute is not. A flute is a piece of technology. And later, the effects of music on the brain. New research provides some clues on how our brains process music and rhythms. Music can modulate brain activity and in certain settings, not, though not curative, can be, uh, can be very helpful, at least for compensating or diverting or, or in some cases enhancing function. Humans and our deep and unique relationship to music. All ahead on Life Examined. You probably can't remember the first time you heard music. Perhaps it was a nursery rhyme, a church choir, or a ringtone. Sounds and rhythms are such an intrinsic part of our lives, it's hard to imagine a world without music. So at what point did our ancestors first become musical, and why? While it's hard to pinpoint the evolution of human song, the discovery of a 40,000-year-old bone flute in a German cave showed that hominids, our prehistoric ancestors, used a tool to produce sounds. Fast forward thousands of years, music has played an important role in cultures all across the globe. But much of our musical inspiration comes from the rhythms of life, from natural sounds around us, and from the rhythmic sounds we make each day, sometimes just placing one foot in front of the other. Professor of Music Michael Spitzer describes music as, quote, our umbilical cord to Mother Nature, and that we're all innately musical, even if we think we can't play a tune. His latest book is called The Musical Human, A History of Life on Earth, and he joins me now. Michael Spitzer, welcome to Life Examined. It's my pleasure. Let's go far, far back in time and talk about where we first uh, may see signs of music. And it, it, I, I sense it may not be in humans, but in animals. So where where does this story begin? Well, my book is an origin story and a history of the world. A very simple answer to where music begins, it's in animals, because birds sing and whales sing. And we descended, we evolved along the ape line. And somewhere um, between 8 million years ago, the date of the missing link between non-human primates and us, um, we began to evolve. So sometime mm. between 8 million years and uh, about 40,000 years ago, when we discovered the first bone flutes, which is a sign of uh, musical technology, animal vocalization evolved into human song. And the the sounds we hear in nature, even today, would that be what we heard those thousands of years ago as well? I, I think so. Um, birds and whales wouldn't have evolved that much. And we know through technology such as spectrographs, which allow us to analyze the acoustic structure of bird songs and, and humpback whale songs, they're very similar to what we call music. Mm. Birds and whales essentially improvise on templates, on, on patterns in a similar way to jazz musicians. They are, they are creative. They have what biologists call vocal learning. Mm. They're, they're able to, not just to receive or to inherit the songs their um, the parents taught them, but they can create new songs not many animals can do that, but um, birds can do it, uh, whales can do it, bats can do it, and we can do it. Mm. And for, for, these, for these incredible creatures and animals, what, what was the purpose of their song, do you think? A similar purpose to the way we use music. So, so birds and, and, and um, whales use song to attract a mate, and mm -hmm. Darwin called that sexual selection. They also use music to deter rivals to establish a home or a territory, and to define who they are, their identity. So as we think about the first, the first sounds that humans made, um, talk to me about those. You, you talked about a little bit about the remnants of bone flutes, um, and, and I'd imagine singing was, was a very big part too. It, it was. We have to be careful. Um, we have a word called music, and 
outside the West, uh, across the world, cultures don't use a single word to define all the very complex things that what we call music does. Somewhere along the line, um, music crystallizes out of many different things, uh, essentially a kind of organized sound. Um, if you look at how um, vervet monkeys use their, their, their calls, their vocalization, they use uh, an alarm call to signal different kinds of predator. So a different call would alert their, their, their colleagues that there's a snake or there's a leopard or there's an eagle. Uh, these sounds have functions. They, they do something. They're not exactly a language because there's no syntax. They can't combine different calls to make a more complex call as we use language to. But what song does is it plays with sound and uproots these sounds from having any function. So gradually, um, uh, uh, primates and hominids, which are our ancestors, they um, start to uh, take vocalizations and enjoy them for, for pleasure. And this happens once the larynx, our vocal organ, starts to descend and enables uh, our ancestors to make a far richer uh, variety of sound. In fact, more sound than they have need for. There's an excess of sound, and so they can start using the sound just, just for pleasure. Mm. So music as an art form means that we enjoy sound for sound's sake. It doesn't have an, an obvious or a direct function. And that happens when there's an excessive sound. The, the, the variety of sound exceeds the function of sound. Now, the second step happens when you start to create tools like flutes hmm. to, to make sound. Why is that so important? Well, the, the first bone flutes 40,000 years ago were so revolutionary because with a, with a tool, you abstract um, notes from the voice. The voice is the most natural organ to produce sound. A flute is not. A flute is a piece of technology. And what's extraordinary about a bone flute is that Homo sapiens managed to com combine two distinct parts of the human brain, the part which is responsible for making tools or technology, and the part which um, uh, expresses emotion or, or, or music. And arguably Neanderthals who came before us couldn't do that. They couldn't cross between these two parts of the brain. And what defines um, the greater plasticity of the human brain is the ability to make these connections between technology and song. What a flute is, it's a tool which makes song. That's amazing because, yeah, you're, you're talking about humans evolving and music evolving at the same time. Um, aspects yeah. of our biology are changing, aspects of our brain, plasticity of the brain changing. And so it, it's a parallel story in many ways, isn't it? It is, but we haven't lost these parts of our brain. Our, our brain is a, is a palimpsest or a multi-layered sandwich. And we still have the, the, uh, the brain stem. Um, and we still have the reptile brain, and we have the amygdala, or the mammal brain. On top of that, we have the neocortex. Now, what's remarkable about music is that it engages all four layers of the brain. So when you hear a, a shock or a loud bang, and a lot of music, think of Haydn, the surprise symphony with a loud bang, that trips the, um, the startle reflex, and it engages the... Um, the most fundamental and, and primitive part of the brain, the brainstem. This is what um, simple organisms flinch to. Mm. They flinch to sound. The, the reptile brain, um, in our brain, um, it enjoys pleasure or displeasure. The mammalian amygdala um, experiences emotions. And the topmost layer, the neocortex, the most complex, it responds to patterns or to musical logic. Now, the same kind of music can engage all four layers of sound. So in a way, when you're listening to music, you're um, time-travelling. You're going back. It's an umbil umbilical cord back to Mother Nature. It takes us back, and we're speaking in a way to when we were mammals, when we were fish, when we were just simple organisms. And only music can do that. No other art form can is, is, uh, can engage different um levels or parameters of, of um, evolution, the same way that music can. That, that image there, the umbilical cord back into where we come from, back into nature, really, really mm. strikes me. 
because, I mean, it, it makes me again think about what music is, the origins of it, uh, the the melody meeting rhythm, um, again, pattern versus kind of embellishment, uh, all, all of these things. And, and are we still in many ways replicating what we hear around us? Or I, I know it's evolved some since then, but that's kind of the image I was following as you were talking. We, we are. Um, once we get into recorded human history or, or civilization, um, the last 40,000 years, then the development of music really accelerates and it goes its own way. So there's there's out of Africa moment where sapiens migrate out of East Africa and they go through Europe and uh, Asia and Australia and then the circumpolar regions and they go to North America and then through down to South America. Uh, music is so plastic in, in some ways as as sticky as as the brain is mm. and wherever it goes it changes and this, this is why although music is a universal phenomenon that is to say every culture in the planet has what it calls music mm-hmm. it's always different it's mm. always different um so my book traces uh, the history of, of the world by going through um music in china in, in india in parts of africa of course in the west mm. It tries to explain why, despite its variety, uh, Western music went viral and dominates the planet through globalization. Mm. A little bit like English or Shakespeare or the English language or technology or, or capitalism. You also write about the importance of, of song between a mother and a child, which I, I found fairly touching. Um, can, you, can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, um, just as music predates language in evolution by billions of years, it also comes before language in human development. So long before language comes in a child's development, when they're toddlers or a little bit older, preschool, they're effectively communicating with their mother through infant-directed speech or, mm. or motherese or proto-conversations. Just look, look at the way a mother or any caregiver um, plays with their child. They have... Um, processes of turn-taking or imitating each other or surprising each other. It's a dialogue and it's completely social and it's musical and in places all the um, dynamics which you see in a jazz improvisation or in a string quartet, so that the way musicians turn-take or imitate each other or play with each other it's a very social phenomenon. It's already in place in a dialogue between a mother and a child, which means that music is always profoundly social. It's never alone. It's always between people. Mm. That, that's another, I think, really important point that, that you write about, which is that the, the origins of early music are, are one, uh, ones that are shared uh, with a community, with a family, with friends. Um, isn't that right as well? You can go even further than that and say mm. that music is the most important thing we ever did because it's music which fostered uh, human society. It stretched uh, social relationships. If you look at the way that um, chimpanzees groom each other through touch, if you groom each other through sound, you can uh, groom a far a bigger group of people. You don't need to be in immediate proximity to somebody you're talking to. So the role of music is to touch a group of people, using the word touch metaphorically. And once, once that's in place, you can use music to coordinate work, that you can work in rhythm with each other. And through sharing sound, you can share feelings and a state of mind, what linguists call a, a theory of mind. You can sense what somebody's thinking by the way they 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 sound the way they they communicate with you um and this uh is is why um human society evolved arguably through sharing sharing sound with each other can you talk a little bit about about rhythm which is something that that it is of course musical but i i've i've never fully understood it why it is so important to humans and of course it is fundamental fundamental say a little bit about that if you would we aren't the only species to feel rhythm. Insects do it. Katydids mm. um, or bush crickets can pulse in regular time in massed choruses. 
Um, interestingly, birds can't do it, with the exception of a cockatoo called Snowball, who can uh, boogie to the sound of, of pop songs, mm. the Backstreet Boys, for example. Um, apes have no rhythm. Uh, they can't sing either. But um, humans were the great synthesizer. They could bring all these things together, um, rhythm and uh, vocal learning and, and the gestures of apes. Rhythm is organization. And when I say that music didn't crystallize in, uh, until quite recently, what we call music, an aspect of that was the rhythm of life. So the, all, all the routines which organize life, you have um, habits, uh, comings and goings. The way you walk, that's rhythm. Getting up on your feet. And um, the first hominins, the Australopithecines, like Lucy and Ardy four million years ago, it was so important to start walking upright because the regularity of footfalls, um, that establishes, um, uh, it forges links between the brain and muscular exertion and indeed sound and not just that but also a sense of time because once you have a pattern of footfalls you can predict what will happen next mm. and that sets in place a really important ingredient of human music and which is why our music is haunted by the rhythm of walking you know, we hear walking in all in all human music um, so you could argue that rhythm is all-encompassing because life is all about routine and regularity and work. Even turn-taking when you have a conversation, that's a kind of rhythm. Hmm. Even thinking about um, um, things in your mind when you're rehearsing memory, you're repeating it in your mind. That's a kind of rhythm. And all, all these things crystallize into what we call music a lot later downstream. It's that that's a fascinating point. I mean, thinking about rhythm in this much more abstract sense as as being present all around us, even when we're not really aware of it. And and you even talked about earlier aspects of the brain that are seeking pattern, always looking for patterns in the world, which is, I think, something yeah. that also makes sense to me when we talk about the nature of rhythm. Yes. And it works both ways, because when we um, walk around a city wearing our earbuds and listen to our favorite songs, we're imposing the rhythm of the track or the song onto the rhythm of city life around us. Mm. We're musicalizing the city, making a, a personal soundtrack, like being in a, our own movie. So we're uh, imposing a, our own rhythm back onto the world where rhythm originally came from. And this is how film music operates. Well, I think this, this brings us to an important point, which is when we first begin to see um, traces of musical notation and how how this changes what music was before. Can, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Um, the story begins about a thousand years ago with a monk in Italy called Guido d'Arezzo. And he invents what we call staff notation. That's, you know, putting five lines on the page and plotting dots to, to create a score. And in a sense, he, um, it's like a book. He, he, he turns music into a, a literate culture. And there are swings and roundabouts or mods and cons to it. It's incredibly useful because it helps the church to uh, regulate um, Christianity or, or Christendom. Hmm. So if you want to know what the monks are singing at the far corners of the, of the empire, say where I come from, which is northern England, you don't have to send soldiers out there because hmm. you can guarantee they literally sing from the same hymn sheet oh, funny. as the monks in, in Rome. Right. Um, the, the problem is that uh, you're turning music into an object. And music isn't an object. Music is an activity like dancing or running or speaking. Or, and it's artificial to think that music can be imprisoned on, on the page, like pinning a butterfly to, to a wall, I like to call it. And that commits um, the West into a very strange uh, relationship to music, where music is on the page. And what musicians do is mechanically reproduce it by performing it. And that drives a wedge between the music and the performer. And you don't get that distinction in many parts of the world, which are um, based on improvisation or creative improvisation. So if we turn to, to India, um, Hindustani or Carnatic oral traditions, um, they, they don't, as a rule, think of the music as something you notate as a piece or a work, as an object. Mm -hmm. and music is a creative act of 
of of improvisation. It's different every time you perform it. You don't freeze it. So we have this um, canon or muse- museum of symphonies or sonatas by Mozart and Beethoven and Bach, um, and uh, they're they're eternal. They're 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 frozen, and um, music becomes rather um, artificial. Mm. It's all about um, heritage. And it 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 uh, saps the vitality, you could say, out of our tradition. I'm not talking, of course, about jazz or about folk or about trad or or many of the surviving oral traditions in the West. I'm talking about the split between the oral and the so-called classical traditions. And it makes me think. I mean, in, in that tradition that you're talking about, how how music can can become in some cases, elitist, or the idea of going to the concert hall, right, where there is the separation between the performer and the listener. It's not an integrative or communal act anymore. It's not. And, and given, as I argue, that music is, is innate, babies are born musical, nearly everybody is musical, it's universal, um, it's bizarre that in the West we have these things called musicians, <laughs> or indeed musical geniuses. Right. So paradoxically, I think the future lies in taking music away from musicians mm. and giving it back to people. I, I wanted to share with you and our listeners, I mean, as a musician myself, I, I lived in, in Kentucky for, for years. This is one of the last places where traditional music is still passed on uh, simply by by memory. And mm. there, you know, you, you would have the traditional jam sessions, as, as much like you might see in England or Ireland, and people would simply just show up with their instruments and begin to play by the songs that have been passed down by generations. And and I would join in, and, and I remember distinctly what a different feeling that is than one gets from what we have just been talking about, the differentiation between the musician and the listener. And and it almost felt as if we were calling back upon earlier forms of, of being human or community or tribe. I think that's kind of what we're talking about here is is more of of that tradition or style of music, which I think resonates a lot more with people, no? Yes, uh, it's a participatory uh, culture of music where anybody can join in at whatever level they're capable of Mm. of performing. Um, So it's very accommodating to to the most skilled and the the less skilled. Um, And originally, I think all music was like that. And in large parts of the world, I'm, I talk in the book about the vendor peoples of Limpopo in South Africa, where um, there's a assumption that everybody joins in the mm. dance. I wonder for you if, if there are other ways that you think that kind of music needs to be taken out of the prison that it's in and kind of restored to what feels like a more organic process. Um, it's hard not to talk about the... Um, the COVID pandemic crisis and often what happens in mm. crises is that they accelerate cultural change. Uh, so technology has often stepped in to, to do that. And we've seen digital stages like TikTok or YouTube as right. forums, as, as fora for um, everybody to, to share music uh, um, it, as I say, it's no longer necessarily in the hands of musicians because anybody can do a parody on YouTube. So that's one possibility that, in a strange way, technology takes us back a million years to how music used to be. And that's a very optimistic development. But you don't need technology. Um, in Britain, we had this weekly ritual last year where every Thursday evening, everybody, and millions of people did, clapped on their doorstep for the National Health Service, the NHS, in solidarity for the doctors and nurses. And this act of common will clapping, this was music, actually, uh, as it used to be. It was also self-medicalizing or self-medicating because the the activity of playing together, of sharing music at this very fundamental level made you feel better. So the irony was, whilst you were clapping for the health service, you were also self-medicating by doing that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a beautiful story. I remember reading and, and seeing clips of that. And 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 just to pick up on something you said a, a moment ago, which is it's interesting. I think how how electronic music is is kind of democratizing music in some way. It's making it accessible. I mean, these days 
you have teenagers in their basements on their laptops creating incredible music and collaborating with people across the world. I mean, it's it's in many ways yeah. very yeah. freeing, and it's amazing to watch it, how that's progressing. It is. It is. We're we're a single planet, and the story which began with with um, you know sapiens taking the first steps out of Africa ends where musical music is circling the whole globe. It's totally. If you look at the downloads for. Um, um, Gangnam Style, where right. several billion people mm. have watched it on YouTube. That's that's in, incredible, um, and it's it's very exciting that I've watched live streamed concerts happening during lockdown. Also, people singing together using using latest technology. Um, it's, it's always quite hard to synchronize um, simultaneous performances, but it's it's happening now. Um, and it brings people together. Mm-hmm. You, you've also written and talked about the importance of, of different uh, musical collaborations that bring together different elements or styles. Um, for example, I, a lot of people loved Hamilton, the, the theater production, and how it was able to interweave elements of rap music and other types. What, what's the importance of those, do you think? The musical human, music is very close to creativity. Mm. And creativity is very close to human nature what we are we are creative beings and i think that music is very close to the wellsprings of creativity because music naturally plays in taking sound away from function is is playing with sound if you look at the um the south german caves 40,000 years ago the bone flute was found very close to the famous lion man figurine it's a statue of a of a human with a lion's head. So playfulness means um, integrating uh, diverse things together, bring, uh, throwing things together. And what a bone flute is, it's, it's taking the bone from a vulture and turning it into a, a musical instrument. Mm. You're, you're synthesizing, you're integrating, you're playing with things. What Hamilton does, um, like all music genres, it's, f- it's fusing music, musicals with hip-hop. Just as you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony uh, uh, integrates a symphony with a chorus, it, it incorporates a choir into a symphony, and pop genres move so fast from day to day because they're constantly uh, subdividing and proliferating into sub 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 genres. You know, hip hop mm-hmm. and grunge and gospel. Look at what Beyonce is doing. Who can? You know, uh, label all, all the all the fusions that Beyonce uh, le- lemonade throws together. So I think music is particularly um, close to the wellsprings of creativity in being a very natural um, mental playground or mental laboratory. And I argue that this is this is where science evolved the the ability to to play and to imagine completely unforeseen combinations of things. Not to mention to imagine gods or the divine or things which are very far away, like happy hunting grounds pictured on cave walls with bisons and, and, and horses. You know, um, what the flute was doing by the cave painting was transporting the, the, uh, the, the Ice Age sapiens 40,000 years ago to those happy hunting grounds. At the same time, by being um, forged, carved from a, a, a vulture bone, it was giving you access to the uh, bird goddess. So in, in some ways, well, in many ways, actually, to play the flute was to give you access to the divine. Hence the original link between music and religion. You know, one thing that, that has always um, jumped out to me about about Indian music, um, you even see it, I think, in in certain Celtic music as well, is is this may sound like a, a small point, but I, I'd be very curious to get your thoughts on it, is the power of drones, of droning music, and one sustained note that can carry out through an entire tone, like you'll hear mm. in Indian music, for example, the kind of grounding, rooting element of that, in the sense, you used the word earlier, how it tunes us. That, to me, seems to like some, there is some natural kind of connective tissue there between music and, and divinity. I, I wonder if you've explored that all or you've thought much about it. Well, yeah, the, the drone in Indian music comes from the divine syllable or, or um, hmm. 
and you can chant Om, and you can, you know, immerse yourself in this droning syllable. And this is the um, the, the hum of the world, you could say. And uh, it suspends time because nothing happens in this drone. And uh, the world evolves by introducing time or temporal division or, or meter or motion into this drone. But as long as you have that drone, then you're transcending time. Mm. And this is one reason why Indian music is, feels a, a lot more timeless mm. than Western music does. Yeah. And you get that in minimalism in American minimalist music by Steve by, by Terry Riley or Steve Reich. This interest in timelessness. Um, it's one of the answers to the travails of modernity to lose yourself by recapturing this timelessness. Um, drones also rhyme with a the landscape. They're a very good way of expressing a vast expanse of a landscape. And if you look at a lot of so-called pastoral music, pastoral as in Beethoven's Sixth Symphony or a lot of folk music, um, which emanate from the landscape, they also use drones for, for similar reasons. Hmm. Nature. It's about nature. But we've covered, we've covered a lot of ground today, and I, I feel like I've, I've also failed to ask you the simple question hmm. of, of, for you... Why? Why is this journey, this 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 you know cosmological or the sto- this the story of human nature through music? Why? Why for you has this been such a, a lifelong passion of of understanding this? Well, to speak personally, um, music spoke to me from my very earliest memory mm-hmm. um, in a, in a way which nothing else did. Um, it gave not being a religious person. It gave me that link to something incredibly meaningful. It gave it gave me meaning in life, and I've never veered away from that. So writing the book was a way of sharing it, to, to share not just my passion but my conviction that music is so incredibly important. As a music professor, um, I'm all too aware that. Um, Members of the public can be intimidated by the perception that music is quite technical mm-hmm. and forbidding. So music notation and harmony and counterpoint is quite difficult to crack. And that's always stopped the incredible, the interesting things which are going on inside music from getting out there. Um, I had a story to tell and I wanted to share it yeah. by getting away from um, this technical aspect of music. So you won't find any... A music notation in in my book, and very little reference to music theory. That's not that's not important. That the message of music's power and its and, it, and its role in human evolution is much more interesting than getting lost in in music theory. Well, I wonder if you have any any final thoughts you'd want to share with us as we begin to close out our conversation. I know we've covered some beautiful things today, but but anything else that that you would want to leave our listeners with? It would be to urge people to make time and space for music, not just when you're cooking or in the gym or, or in your car, but make time just to sit on your couch and listen to whatever you're into for 20 minutes a week or even a day and, and really listen to it and reconnect, reconnect with music. Well, Michael Spitzer, I, I, I really appreciated this conversation from one from one music lover to an ex. Uh, I've learned a lot today, and, and thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. Michael Spitzer is a professor of music at Liverpool University in the UK and the author of The Musical Human, A History of Life on Earth. Still to come, music's relationship to the brain. That's ahead on Life Examined. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars.
I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Michael Spitzer trace the history of music and rhythm. He suggests that we all need to take some time each week to really sit down and listen and reconnect with music. So could listening to music also enhance the way our brains function? Can music help with Parkinson's and depression? And what types of music have the most therapeutic impact? Joining us to explain the effects of music on brain function is David Silverswig. He's a neurologist and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Stanley Cobb Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. David Silverswig, welcome to Life Examined. I'm happy to be here and speak with you. You have a, a fascinating history in terms of um, psychiatry, neuroscience. I know you're a bit of a musician as well, but but I wonder for you when this this real passion and understanding how music impacts or or plays a role in in how the brain works. Wh- when did this interest develop for you? Well, music always was uh, a core activity and part of my identity, and uh, I think in college. I studied philosophy and became very interested in the mind-brain issues and the nature of the relationship between brain activity and mental activity and, and eventually in health and disease. And, uh, and throughout various aspects of our life, and of course, music is one of the domains that's really important and meaningful and uh, emotional for so many people and civilizations or cultures that uh, I was intrigued and wanted to sort of integrate my interests and became interested in understanding more about the, the mechanisms by which music arises and uh, and how it affects the brain. Yeah. So, so kind of amaze us here a little bit. I mean, how does music penetrate the brain? What, what, what's going on inside of us? So there are many different elements of that. One most obvious perhaps or initial is that music comes in through our ears and the auditory sphere, although we can also feel it, especially in terms of rhythm or uh, very deep bass frequencies in literally in, in, in our body, the vibrations. And, uh, but music comes through the auditory system and comes through evolutionarily older circuits and regions, if you will, uh, and also up to higher order regions. And the sounds get deconstructed and then reconstructed by the brain and interpreted and integrated with emotion and other elements and affect us. And so really it's the concerted action of a number of different brain areas and processes in the auditory system and for music that has words, auditory linguistic systems that, uh, that activates, if you will, these systems and can drive them and also can start to be integrated with, um, as, as I mentioned, emotion and even behavior as well as uh, memory and, and mood. So when you see, say, somebody listening or playing music under an MRI or fMRI, it sounds to me that there's just a lot of activity that would show up on the screen. Absolutely. And, and you make a, an important point in distinguishing between and, or mentioning both listening to music versus or and um, playing music oneself. Those are two different things. They're interrelated, but they are different systems. In one case, it's more uh, you're more on the receptive side of the auditory stimuli, if you will, that unfold in time, over time in music, which is another element that's very cool and important to understand about it. And in the other case, it is systems by which you generate music, uh, either music that is uh, something that you've pre-rehearsed or overlearned or improvisation. Each of these types of activities has different neural signatures, as you might expect. And the neural signatures also depart from what's called the default mode of the brain or the the resting state or idling state of the brain that normally one is in. And then you start to stimulate the brain with these different frequencies and rhythms and tones and progressions. And you start to see areas in the temporal lobe, uh, superior and middle temporal lobe 
uh, of our brain on the, the sort of sides of our brain inside uh, or uh, what we would say medial to the ears uh, and in the head. And, and then there's interconnections from primary auditory areas that process the pitch or frequency of sounds to what we call auditory association areas in these gyri, in these regions and in these networks that pull out different meanings from the sound and make different associations with the sound. Also connecting up with memory networks, including in the middle part of the temporal lobes, the area, areas uh, such as the hippocampus, and emotional areas that are uh, involved in what we call the limbic system deep in the brain, some phylogenetically older areas, um, and related to that, motivational areas and reward areas in the brain, like something we call the nucleus accumbens or the ventral striatum that's involved when we listen to music and have a pleasurable feeling. And then finally, the behavioral aspects, you know, when we feel like we want to move or dance that connect up to the motor system and uh, behavioral output, um, or when it's in the case of playing music that are involved in the, um, the automatized uh, and also learned um, and spontaneous um, production of motor movements, finger movements, mouth movements uh, that might be involved in, in producing music and listening to other people as you do it and integrating all of that in real time. And David, you know, I, I'm really interested by this question of, of music and memory, which is something you mentioned there, which is how, how music can evoke these, these incredible um, memories of our past and almost transport us back to these different times. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that connection? Absolutely. Emotional memory is really interesting. And in a way, it's the combining of emotions and memory processes, emotional and memory processes that makes us remember things more and makes memory traces stronger um, for good reason, because if something is salient to us as an organism or any organism, then it's more important that we remember it. And, and, and it, so those memory processes are strengthened. We see this with olfaction, one of the most primitive senses where a certain smell can bring you right back to your grandmother's house or, you know, uh, something uh, like that. Or with music where you hear a tune and it takes you right back to seventh grade, um, etc. And so these associations are fascinating and point to the importance of the connections in the brain, and the study of which is now called connectomics, using brain imaging and other technologies that allow us to understand how these things like memories, um, emotions, sensory uh, processes all come together in a way that's adaptive and can be quite important in, in our lives and health and disease. Let's talk a little bit about the therapeutic aspect of music. Um, this is something that, that you've been looking into. It could be used for, for people that are you know, suffering from depression or other neurological conditions. How do we begin to apply this in a therapeutic way? Yeah, I'm glad you said depression and other neurological conditions because it helps to understand that depression, especially in its more severe forms, is a, a brain problem um, and not just a, a psychological issue. Um, the music has been demonstrated in studies to be helpful for patients or people suffering from depression, uh, where it can lift spirits and help to modulate moods to some extent. In patients with Alzheimer's disease, where they may not be able to have a certain level of functioning or verbiage um, or understanding or memory, but when a tune comes on from a certain era in their lives, an older period perhaps, they can light, light up and get engaged and, um, and it can activate them uh, and connect them more. In patients with Parkinson's disease where they have difficulty initiating movements, 
uh, if you play music that is um, uh, that has a certain rhythm to it, it can get them walking, if you will. In patients who have a stroke in the dominant or left often hemisphere who may have difficulty with language, um, one of the striking things is you can start to sing happy birthday and they'll sing along with you, even though they otherwise won't be able to produce other language and, and words uh, because of the way in which the, the right hemisphere and other surrounding areas in, in the brain get recruited and, and the, the ways in which these um, overlearned and, and musically associated um, tunes are, are represented in the brain. So there are a number of different areas where, um, where it can be helpful. It's amazing to think that somehow music can, can pierce through what could be this, you know, this, this mental illness or, or uh, something that, like Alzheimer's, uh, blocks the recalling of memory. I mean, I mean it shows that there's a certain kind of potency to, to the music that is, that, that's kind of extraordinary. Yes, a potency. And then as you unify all these things, it starts to make sense because music has its effect, as we've been talking about, through the brain. That's how it's mediated. And these are disorders of the brain. And so it would stand to reason that, um, that music can modulate brain activity and in certain settings, not, though not curative, can be, uh, can be very helpful, at least for compensating or diverting or in some cases, enhancing function. I know that you're a trombonist, you're a percussionist, a guitarist, um, and thinking about rhythm here or, or drums, something that we see, I think, fairly cross-culturally. How, how do you see rhythm impacting the brain or, or the importance of someone engaging with it? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the brain processes information via rhythms, one of the exciting areas right now is to really understand the temporal dynamics, the, the time signatures and oscillations that occur in the brain that uh, bind across regions of the brain and synchronize in, in time uh, certain processing. And that underlies many important aspects of consciousness, of awareness and, and experience. And so in a way, rhythm is a direct way of driving or pacing the brain and, um, and affecting the brain in, in those regards. And so there's research as to the differential effects of different rhythms, different um, tempos and so forth. And again, they're cultural elements. Um, one of my best friends and a, a former bandmate is, is a uh, master West African drummer. And in that culture, of course, drumming is is even more highly developed, and and uh, than it is in in in, uh, in many other cultures, including in the United States, typically. And the complexity of the effects of the of the rhythms and their interactions um, is is really something to behold, and and the effect that that can have on a group of people, uh, socially and emotionally. Uh, and in terms of the the cohesion as well as something that's that's currently being explored. Tell me a little bit about where you think some of this research is going. What what other exciting things do you see um, coming down the pipeline in terms of understanding music in the brain? You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is, in a way, sort of brain hacking that's going on already um, with things like Pandora and, and other algorithms that essentially, you know, take your own responses and selections and start zeroing in more and more on what you like and feeding it to you and reinforcing it and so forth. Uh, that's both a dangerous thing and a fascinating thing, and it can be a pleasurable thing. But I, I think that is, is something that, um, that will provide a lot of data also, and we can understand more about the neural correlates, if not mechanisms of. Um, and so try to understand the ways in which, as individuals, music modulates our brain uh, to be able to understand, as we know more now about the circuits underlying neuropsychiatric disorders, um, we can then marry those two streams of, uh, of, of knowledge creation, if you will, and its experience and be able to develop more individually tailored and disorder or symptom tailored approaches 
that are um, you know that 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 are scientifically based and yet of course you know ultimately aesthetically pleasing and, and wonderful and and so it sort of transcends the this distinction between the arts and the sciences well finally I mean, are you a proponent of listening to more music, learning to play more music, getting children involved in music? Just just the more the better. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. You know, um, there's now strong evidence that, that music training does affect the brain. You can see structural and functional circuit changes in the brain. You can see volume changes in regions of the brain. You can see increased connectivity among certain regions of the brain. And so... I think, you know, and people talk about the Mozart effect and this and that, and some of, some of that's not supported and is overblown, but other aspects of that general notion and particular instantiations of that are, are certainly the case. And, and it's been shown um, now, you know, pretty consistently that, that music is good for the brain and that it generalizes beyond just the musical talent to be able to enhance other forms of executive functioning um, and cognition. And uh, an emotion, and and so, um, you know, I, and I think the experience that many people have in different parts of the world and in educational systems would support that. And the more that can be developed and enhanced, the better. And as one thinks about funding for the arts and music programs and things like that, um, I think having this in mind when determining policy and resource allocations and and, and so forth can be helpful. David Silberswag is a neurologist and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Stanley Cobb Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. David, thanks for joining us on Life Examined. We appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Take care. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to read your review. You can also find us at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.